Chapter Four of Bill Bidden Trapper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Bill Bidden Trapper by Edward Sylvester Ellis. Chapter Four The Trapping Grounds. I was agreeably surprised upon waking to see Nat standing within a few feet, holding two horses by the bridle. "'Which one will you choose?' he asked with a broad smile. "'How did you come by them?' asked I. "'I suppose it must have been about the time you left us last night that Bidden woke me up and told me to follow him, as there was a powerful chance to get a couple horses for you and me. I asked him where you could be.' and he said he supposed you'd gone further upstream to sleep by yourself, though he hadn't seen you go. Howsomever, we wasn't worried, as we thought you were old enough to take care of yourself. So we started down the bed of the stream. We went about half a mile when Bidden showed me a small campfire, burned down to a few coals and ashes, but there was enough light to show us two horses picketed a few yards away and we seen the feet of a couple of redskins turned toward the fire. Bidden said as how they was a couple of hunters sound asleep, and we might borrow their horses if I didn't make too much noise. He told me to stand still and keep my gun pointed at them, and the minute one stirred to shoot him, and then rush in and dispatch the other. I promised to do so, and he stole around to the horses on his hands and knees. He had cut both the lariats and was leading them away, when one of the Indians raised his head and looked around, and as soon as he seen the horses moving off, give a grunt and jumped up and ran toward them. I remembered it was my duty to shoot, and as the Indian was running pretty fast, I aimed about ten feet ahead of him, supposing, of course, the villain would get there as soon as the bullet did. But I'll be hanged if he wasn't mean enough to stop and let the bullet be wasted. My gun kicked like blazes, and the engines, I suppose, thought a whole tribe was upon them. For setting up a great howl, they scooted off in the darkness, leaving us alone with the animals. Running back, I overtook Bidden, who was riding along as though nothing had happened. He asked me to ride, and of course I jumped on, and here I am. But which horse do you want? I do not see that there is much room for choice, I replied. Both are splendid animals, and a most opportune blessing. If it's all the same to you, this gentleman is mine. And handing the bridle to me, he vaulted upon the other. The latter was a magnificent Indian pony of a deep bay color, probably captured when very young, and high-spirited and fiery. Both manifested considerable uneasiness, knowing they were in the hands of strangers and Nats made one or two efforts to dislodge him, but he was a good horseman, and maintained his place with apparent ease despite the struggles, which were frantic and desperate at first. Mine was somewhat larger, of a coal-black color, and with as much spirit and fire as the other, but in a few moments we had them both under perfect control. Besides these two animals, we gained two fine Indian saddles, and were now as well mounted as we could wish. Nat remarked that when the buffaloes thundered by, 
he felt some apprehension for me but the trapper expressed none saying that i would be found all right in the morning as soon as there was light nat commenced searching the bed of the stream for me and failing in this he climbed a tree and took a survey of the prairie on both sides from his elevation he discovered what he believed to be my dead body and accompanied by Biddon and the horses hastened toward me upon reaching me they understood instantly the whole matter and it was their loud laughter that had aroused me we were now pretty far to the northwest of nebraska territory the face of the country was materially different and i began to notice a change of temperature the summer had just closed and the early autumn was like the approach of winter the nights were cool and chilling and the days generally mild at noon but often keen and exhilarating the prairie was mostly of the rolling kind but the belts of timber were more common and the vegetation richer and more exuberant it was plain too that we were journeying into a section where the foot of civilization had not been the vast undulating swell of the prairie the mighty fields of verdure and the broad rivers and streams bore only the marks of the red man and the wild beast toward noon nat descried a solitary antelope far ahead it was near a grove of timber from which it had just wandered and stood gazing wonderingly at our approach we rode on in silence for some time when Biddon raised his hand for us to halt what do you intend doing i asked just hold on and see he replied as he dismounted he made a circuit skirting the prairie so as to reach the grove mentioned upon the opposite side from the antelope i still was at a loss to understand his intention as the animal was too distant from the timber to be brought down with a rifle shot from that point what under the sun does he intend doing i asked turning to nat guess he's getting off there to shoot us on the outer edge of the grove next to the antelope i saw him emerge holding a stick over his head to which was affixed a handkerchief or rag he walked a short distance and then lay down flat upon the prairie perfectly concealed in the grass the rag was visible fluttering above him i now watched the motions of the antelope he stood gazing at us until the trapper came into view when with a startled glance at him he wheeled and ran in a moment however he paused and turned quickly around his looks were now fixed upon the fluttering signal he stood motionless a moment and then cautiously lifting his foot made a step toward it thus he continued to approach step by step with apparent fear and yet evidently impelled by an ungovernable curiosity until he was scarce a hundred yards distant from the prostrate form of the trapper still he was moving stealthily onward when suddenly a red tongue of fire spouted from the grass and as the sharp crack of biddon's rifle reached us we saw the antelope give a wild leap into the air and bounding a short distance fall to the ground the trapper immediately sprang to his feet and hastened to the fallen animal let's ride to him said i walking my horse onward we had ridden a short distance when nat halted and asked what's got into biddon just look at him i did look up 
and for a moment believed the man had turned crazy. He had seen us approaching, and was now making furious gesticulations toward us. I watched him a moment, and then remarked, He is either signaling for us to come on, or to stop. He means us to wait, I guess, and we'd better pause until he returns. We reined in our horses and watched him. He was apparently satisfied with our stopping, and stooped and commenced working at the animal. In a few moments he arose, and slinging a huge piece on his shoulder, made his way into the grove. From this he emerged in due time, and made his way toward us, motioning, meanwhile, for us to remain in our places. Why didn't you wish us to approach? I asked as soon as he came within speaking distance. He made no answer, but throwing his meat upon the ground, hastily mounted his horse. Then he spoke in a deep whisper, Boys, did you suppose there's over twenty redskins among them trees? Heavens! It isn't possible, I exclaimed, catching my breath. It's so. I see them. And their eyes are on us at this minute. They're waiting for us to go on, and they'll give us thunder and lightning. What's to be done? queried Nat. Just keep still and don't kick up or they'll see it. We've got to make a run for it. Keep close to me, and when I start, let your horses went. But the meat, I hurriedly asked, can't take it. We have a long run, and our horses won't want to carry no extra load. I didn't see their animals, but I guess they ain't mounted. Ready! With this, Bidden wheeled his horse quickly around, and vanished from his place with the speed of lightning, while ours almost simultaneously shot ahead like an arrow. An instant after, I heard the faint discharge of guns, and looking back, saw a host of savage forms pouring hastily from the timber. No need of hurrying, they're not mounted, I called out to Nat, who was hurrying his horse to the utmost. I don't believe it, he exclaimed, still speeding furiously onward. Go it, Todd! You'll fetch up at Fort Laramie, yelled Bidden. The latter drew his horse into a steady canter and indulged in several loud laughs at the flying fugitive. Nat continued his mad career until he had gone a good distance, when, seeing how far behind he had left us, he reined up and awaited our approach. The savages, in the meantime, were hurrying on in pursuit. I know not what led them to expect any success in this chase, for, as remarked, not one was mounted. They may have had little faith in the speed or bottom of our horses, and trusted they would be able to run us down. Bidden half turned in his seat, and looking back a moment, asked, Do you see that red, digging like all mad off on one side, the one as is trying to surround us? I glanced back and answered in the affirmative. Do you want to see a red drop in pretty style? I answered again in the affirmative. Well... Just keep your peeper on him. So saying, he raised his rifle, without checking the speed of his horse, took a quick aim along its long barrel, and fired. To my astonishment, the Indian mentioned uttered a wild shriek, and springing high in the air, fell to the earth. He's done for, remarked the trapper, quietly, while I fodder my iron, supposing you try your hand. 
I raised mine to my shoulder, and pointing it toward a conspicuous savage, pulled the trigger. As might be expected, I came about as near to him as I did to Nat in front. It will take a long time for me to accomplish that feat, said I. Well, here goes again. And again was the fatal rifle discharged, and again did a savage bite the dust. Still the pursuers maintained their ground, seemingly determined to overtake us at all hazards. They were separating and scattering over the prairie, with the evident intention of hemming us in. At this moment we came up to Nat. "'Why don't you run?' he asked impatiently. "'They'll shoot us afore we know it.' He had scarcely finished his words when the pursuers did fire, and with an uncomfortable effect, too. The bullets were plainly heard whistling through the air beside us, and one actually cut its way through the upper part of Nat's hat, some eight or ten inches from the crown of his head. He dodged nervously, and jerking the hat off his head, held it up to view. "'Just look there!' he exclaimed, indignantly putting his finger through the orifice. "'What of it?' gruffly asked Bidden. "'That's a pretty question to ask, I should think.' I swear I won't stand any such work as this. And giving his horse the rein, he shot rapidly ahead. I guess we might as well, remarked Bidden, letting his horse have free rein. The race was now decided. At such speed as we went, of course the pursuers were soon left behind, and in an hour not one was visible all of them being either distanced or having voluntarily withdrawn. Our course was southwest, so that we had lost considerable ground, and were obliged to make a long detour to regain the trail. We camped at night about as far south as the previous camp, but farther west. In the morning we struck due north, and continued in this direction for several days. It is not necessary to give the particulars of our journey to the northwest. We continued traveling onward for three days, when we reached the region where it was intended we should remain until spring. This was much further northward than I suspected. In fact, it was but a few miles distant from the Hudson Bay Territory, and upon one of the remote tributaries of the Missouri we had entered a climate that even now was like the winter of the one we had left. We had entered a mighty wilderness, where, ere we left it, we were doomed to pass through some strange experiences, and of which I now shall speak. We had detected signs of beavers at several streams we had crossed during the last day or two of our journey, but Bidden paid no attention to them until about the middle of the afternoon, when we reached a small river flowing nearly due south and passing through the Hudson Bay Territory in its course. This stream we forded, and as we reached the opposite side he remarked, Here the spot where we're going to squat. It is perhaps worth remarking that the section was a wooded country. We had passed over no clear prairie during the day and were in the midst of a deep wood. The trees were of nearly every conceivable kind, the cottonwood predominating, with oak, elm, ash, walnut, and such as are common in our own forests. 
after crossing the trapper headed directly upstream for a short distance when he turned to the left and descended into a valley here he dismounted take your fixin's said he and turn the horses loose won't they wander away i asked yourn may but mine won't you've got to take your chances though tain't likely they'll be disturbed except by grizzlies and reds the spot selected was a broad bottom of rich grass enclosed by thick walls of undergrowth upon every side here we left our horses and taking our saddles and trappings moved away have you ever been here before i asked of the trapper i stayed here last season but didn't expect to come back howsomever i changed my mind and here we is move careful and don't make a big trail we followed nearly a quarter of a mile directly upstream when he halted and looked carefully about him i don't suppose there's reds about but there's no telling where they is i didn't see none last year but they might be about now just hold on a minute the banks of the stream were fringed by a deep undergrowth upon both sides stepping forward to the water's edge the trapper parted the branches and glancing a moment within motioned for us to approach it's all right said he there hain't been no reds poking about here while i was gone with this he stooped and pushed a small canoe into the water and slipped within it we joined him although our combined weight brought the frail vessel down to its very gunwales it was made of bark after the indian fashion very light but strong Bidden dipped a long indian paddle in the water and we moved slowly upstream after going a short distance he again touched the bank and from beneath another lot of shrubbery drew forth a number of beaver traps these were similar to the common trap used in all parts of the world and set much after the same fashion but with a very different bait at every point where signs of the animals were visible he dug down the bank so as to make a certain spot perpendicular just beneath the surface of the water he then placed the trap the next and last proceeding was to smear the banks around with a very odoriferous oil obtained from the beaver itself this smell attracts the beavers in the vicinity who immediately swim to the shore to learn more of it the trap is so arranged that one is sure to place his foot directly upon it for support in ascending the bank and the natural consequence follows he is caught and falls into his mortal enemy's hands if one don't have a dinner on beaver tails tomorrow then i'm a beaver remarked Pidden, after he had set all his traps and headed his canoe downstream a dinner on beaver tails exclaimed nat in astonishment that must be a fine dinner i swear if you had read much of these animals you would know that the part mentioned by Bidden is the most delicious and nourishing portion said i and when you gets a bite of it you'll find it so i reckons perhaps so replied nat doubtingly but where are you going to take us you'll find out when we get there the trapper rode the canoe quite a distance downstream when he sheared it into shore close to where a huge chestnut larger than any i had ever before witnessed overhung the water its base was enveloped by a mass of undergrowth denser than common 
and we were obliged to stoop to the edge of the boat before we could make our way beneath it. As we sprang up the bank, it pulled up behind us, and I then noticed that the chestnut was hollow, and had a deep orifice at its base. Foller, commanded Bidden, stooping and crawling beneath it. We did so, although there was some hesitation on my part, and my astonishment was unbounded at what I witnessed when within. At first there was nothing visible but the intense darkness, and I stood, fearful of advancing or retreating. "'Where are you, Bidden?' asked Nad in a slightly wavering tone. The next instant the trapper struck a light, and as its rays filled the chamber, I repeat, my astonishment was unbounded. We were standing in an open space, at least eight feet in diameter. The chestnut was but a mere shell with its trunk but a few inches in thickness at the most. The interior of this was fitted up like a house. The rotten chunks upon the sides had been torn down, and formed a pleasant velvety carpet beneath the feet. All around the walls were hung numerous furs, and a pile at one side afforded a bed, such as we had not enjoyed for weeks. Added to all this, there was an arrangement so as to make it perfectly easy and convenient to kindle a fire. Nat was the first to express his unbounded astonishment. This beats all. I never seen anything like it. But don't the Injuns know anything of it? No, sir. And I calculate as how they won't neither, if you don't tell them. Oh, I won't tell them. I swear this is queer. And he looked slowly about and above him. "'What's that hole for?' he asked, pointing to a small orifice just visible far above us. "'That's for the smoke to go out.' "'But it must be likely to attract attention,' I remarked. "'I never start a fire except at night. I see. Wonderful.' And I, too, gazed admiringly about me. The light made the whole interior visible. The dark, snuff-colored fragments of decayed wood hung in ponderous masses above us, and the immense diameter gradually tapered as it ascended, until only the small opening far above was seen, resembling a faint star. The thickness of the wood, together with the great number of firs, protected us so well from the cold that there could be little need of fire in the coldest weather, except for cooking purposes. This is rather odd, I allow to you, Jersey. But if you had been with me down on the Yellowstone, you'd seen something as would have made you look, you would. You may shoot me if you wouldn't. I suppose I should, but not more than this has. Maybe not. But don't stand gaping there all day. It's getting dark, and we'll have our fodder. The fire was now started, and the smoke ascended finely, escaping at the outlet. A good slice of meat was cooked and we made a hearty supper upon it. After this, the fire was allowed to slumber, but the light remained burning until a late hour. We lit our pipes and chatted dreamily for a long time in our new home. The trapper, feeling in the mood, related many reminiscences of his life, including adventures both tragical and comical, and Nat gave a few of his own experiences. At a late hour we ceased, and fell into a peaceful, dreamless slumber. When I awoke, the trapper had disappeared, 
Nat was stretched beside me, still asleep. In a short time, the former entered as noiselessly as he had departed. What fortune, I asked? Good. Had two fat fellers. Wake up, and we'll have a meal as is a meal. Nat soon made a movement, and after several yawns became fully awake. The trapper kindled a small fire and cooked his beaver tails. The two made as choice and delicious a meal as I have ever eaten. Nat was convinced by one taste. The day was clear and pleasant, and Bidden expressed his determination of going up the stream in order to see the signs of game. I accompanied him, but Nat chose to remain at home and sleep a few hours longer. We sauntered carelessly forth up the stream through the tangled underwood. It was a clear day in autumn. The air was keen and bracing, and the woods gloriously fine. Some of the leaves were just beginning to fall, and they made a dappled and fiery carpet for our feet, rustling with a soft, pleasant sound at every step. Now and then we could hear the shrill notes of some songster of the forest and once or twice the faint bay of some distant animal. We had wandered some distance when Bidden proposed turning back, as he had just discovered he had forgotten his pipe. I was too well pleased, however, with the prospect to retrace my footsteps. Accordingly, we parted company for a time, he remarking that probably he would return when he had regained his indispensable article. Left alone, I now wandered dreamily onward in a pleasant reverie, hardly conscious of what I was doing, until I was recalled to my senses by the grandeur of a new scene that suddenly burst upon my view. I had ascended a small rise on the bank of the stream, from which I had an extended view of the river. I stood for a moment, wrapped in the glories of the scene. Far behind could be discerned the broad bosom of the river, stretching away like a vast body of molten silver bordered on either side by the mighty forest, until it disappeared in a sweeping curve within the interminable wilderness. Above me for several miles the same winding course could be seen, brightly glistening for miles. Not a ripple disturbed the surface, save when a bird skimmed over it, just tipping its wings and making a flashing circle or two. The blue sky above, unflecked by a single cloud, harmonized so well with the magnificent view that I stood a long time drinking in the splendor of the scene. My eye was still resting upon the glistening bend of the river above when the quietness of the scene was interrupted by a dark speck which suddenly came in view around a curve about a mile above. At first I supposed it to be some animal or log floating upon the surface, but as I looked at it, I saw to my astonishment that it was a canoe coming downstream. Several forms were visible, yet their number at that distance was uncertain. The bright flash of their paddles was visible in the morning sunshine, and they maintained their place near the center of the stream. I scrutinized them vainly to make out their number, until it occurred to me that it would be best to make myself invisible. The approaching canoe might contain nothing but Indians and it was not desirable that our presence in this section should be known to any but ourselves. I slipped behind the trunk of a tree, nearer the water, yet still upon the elevated knoll, which entirely concealed my body from sight.
from this point I watched the approach of the canoe with interest. Soon it came nigh enough to enable me to distinguish the forms within it. There were two Indian warriors seated each with a paddle in his hand, but not using them except to keep the canoe in the channel, and in the stern with a guiding oar sat a young female. I supposed her a squaw belonging to the same tribe with her companions, and scrutinized her as closely as my position would permit. She wore a beautiful headdress, gaily ornamented with stained porcupine quills and beads, and a brilliant crimson shawl enveloped her slight form. The savages maintained their places as motionless as statues, their gaze apparently resting upon the stream behind them, while that of the female was fixed upon the stream in front, and her whole attention absorbed in directing her canoe. I know not whether the inmates discovered me before I concealed myself, but I fancied that I detected a glance of the Indians at my hiding-place as they floated slowly by, and some cause led the female, when directly opposite, and but a few hundred feet distant, to turn her face toward me. Judge of my astonishment at perceiving that she was not an Indian, but a white woman. Her appearance, as she turned her gaze directly upon the spot where I was standing, I can never forget. She was so close at hand, and my view so perfect in the clear sunlight, that I saw every feature. The pale white face, surrounded by dark, luxuriant hair falling upon the shoulders, the dark eyes shaded by long, inky lashes, and the mute, untranslatable look haunted me for many a night after. She merely glanced toward me, and slowly floated past. Dropping upon my hands and knees, I crept hastily from the knoll into the undergrowth below, and made my way hurriedly but noiselessly to the stream. I could not have been over a minute in so doing, but when I reached the water and peered through the bushes, not a trace of the canoe was visible. I looked closely into each shore, up and down the stream, everywhere that I could look, but could not detect the slightest ripple or movement to account for this mysterious disappearance. For over an hour I waited in the hope that the canoe would reappear, but I saw nothing more of it. End of chapter 4